Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That is L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. This week, the spotlight shines on Mike Butera, founder and CEO of Artifon. Mike is a fascinating person, a classically trained musician, an academic theorist, and a product visionary. His company, Artifon, creates a new breed of musical instrument that anyone can play. How do they do this? You're going to have to listen to our conversation to find out. Enjoy. So, I typically like to start a little bit at the beginning um, before we jump into the the current project and the current business. Um, And there's a couple of things I think that stand out in your background as particularly unique, at least for the guests I've had so far. Um, But where I'd like to start is, can you talk to me a little bit about your early involvement with music? Um, I saw you, you're a classically trained violinist, but... I suspect that doesn't quite tell the whole story. Um, (laughs) How did music become part of your life? So when I was growing up, um, I think it was third grade, the high school orchestra showed up and, and uh, basically was recruiting, you know, new, new members uh, and played a show. And I, I came home and told my parents I wanted to play violin uh, and, they were like, why? It sounds so hard. <laughs> they were very supportive, but also surprised. Um, so I, you know, I, I didn't necessarily grow up in a highly musical household, but, um, but was really supported and, you know, started on violin when I was eight. Uh, Miss Ko was my Korean uh, instructor and super stringent and, uh, you know, Bach all day. And, and it was, it was great. I mean, I learned the fundamentals, um, but I didn't actually, um, you know, we weren't doing any sort of ear training, um, no improvisation. Uh, I wasn't even listening to other people's recordings of, of the partitas or anything I was playing. I was just reading the, the music on the sheet. So then I think I was 14 or so. And a band asked me to play with them, to play uh, a solo from a song. And so I transcribed the solo because that's what I knew how to do. And I read it. I brought the paper up on stage and the show was happening and I was reading the music and I lost my place and uh, had this moment where I was like, I don't know what to play next because I, I lost my place. But I was like, we're, we're in D minor. And so I'll play a D and then an F and maybe a G <laughs> and, uh, and, and that was my moment. That was wow. like, yeah, now I'm, now I'm improvising and, and this is what people like, I really enjoyed it. And I was bummed when the, when the solo ended and um, actually for a while, I quit violin lessons, violin lessons after that. Cause um, I just wanted to explore new ways to play, picked up some other stringed instruments and then, um, then ended up going to college for, 
music and music production and all kinds of stuff. So those were the early days. What was the, um, what was the answer to the why violin? <laughs> uh, I thought that the, the cute girl in elementary school was going to play violin. She ended up playing viola. So I kind of, kind of missed out on that one, but, um, uh, no, that wasn't the only reason. It just seemed, it seemed super expressive. It, it was, uh, it was a mystery to me at the time that you could get those kinds of sounds and playing with other people that, um, it was, it seemed like, like a club that, that you could get in of people who had been learning the stuff, you know, figuring out this mysterious object and then making these huge sounds that filled the room. That was, that was pretty magical at the time. So, um, yeah, that, that's what drew me to it. But I was always, I was always a second violin, like always. And, uh, I, it's not that I, you know, uh, really wanted to be a first, but I don't know this, I kind of always fit with the seconds and, and sometimes near the back and just watching the whole orchestra and kind of focused on that activity more than just the strict, um, you know, perfection of it. It's interesting. You hear that a lot um, with kids as well in sports where some kids play team sports because they just want to be there, like out on the baseball diamond or running up and down the pitch. They don't need to, they don't need to win every game. They don't need to be the star player. They just want to go out and play. I know. I, I played soccer for a couple of years and I was the halfback, uh, which just meant that I ran everywhere because <laughs> that, that's what was fun about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. Um, just another quick question about the, uh, um, the way you were taught and the way you learned, you, you mentioned that you didn't particularly listen to a lot of recordings of the, um, uh, uh -huh. of the repertoire you were learning was, or is that typical? Was it, was it like typical of the era you were taught in, or is it unique to classical training? I, I'm very curious about that. Yeah, sure. So, uh, the Suzuki method it was really popular. I think it still is, um, in classical training. And there is a, um, a focus on ear training to the extent that, you know, you're staying in tune and things and, and people take Suzuki in a couple different directions. Um, I don't know if it was, was just my context. Uh, you know, we, we didn't have a bunch of tapes, or records at home. Uh, and so, you know, of, of classical music of any of these pieces. So, um, you know, and then there was nothing to download in those days. So it, it kind of was a scarcity issue of sound. I mean, we could turn on classical radio and, and hear entire orchestras, but solo violin pieces, you didn't tend to hear. So I don't know. We, um, that, that was just my experience. I think other teachers probably focused more on sending home, you know, uh, dubbed tapes and things uh, yeah. for the students to play along with. My, mine just didn't. In some ways, it, it did develop my ear in a different way, though, because I, it, everything happened from silence compared to just playing along. Uh, I don't know what it would have been like otherwise. Did the teacher demonstrate for you or did, was it literally just reading off the page? she would she would in the lesson she would demonstrate tell me how it was supposed to happen and then i would spend 20 minutes trying to do that and sometimes i get a slap on the wrist with a bow uh if i if i was sagging um yeah it was it was really intense like i yeah. 
yeah, I would like lock my knees and faint and stuff. It was, uh, it was gory. Yeah. I was, I, you know, before you said that, I was about to ask you if, um, if you recall any of it with joy um, <laughs> <laughs> and let me, before I let you answer that, I will yeah. say, you know, I took piano lessons as a kid and it was definitely in that era of, um, you know, slightly stern, yeah. uh, female teacher. It wasn't joyous. And it was a lot yeah. of, I think it was a year into the lessons before I even really meaningfully sat at the instrument. It was a lot of theory drawing notes on in the workbooks. Um, and then you fast forward and my oldest son um, started taking piano at around five and he's 17 now and he, he still takes lessons. Yeah. And um, his, the methodology he's grown up with is completely different. Huh. Um, they sat the kids down at the instrument very quickly um, when it was time to teach them about rhythm, they gave them a hand drum when it was time, you know, they, the, um, instead of having sort of an air quotes, a recital, they would right. have gigs where right. the teachers from the music school were the backing band and the kids would learn a couple of pieces throughout the semester and yeah. then front the band. So each kid would come up and, you know, that feeling of having, to your point, when you were a teenager, having a band behind you, having a drummer playing is so Dude. much more fun than just sitting yeah. there frozen in front of an auditorium. Of I mean, it, it does, it does, uh, I think mark some, a couple generational shifts in, in the meantime here. You know, I had a ton of respect for Miss Kao. She was amazing. Like I, I would walk in a lesson feeling proud to be there and to be, uh, you know, learning from someone who knew so much. Um, fast forward to a couple of years ago, I, I gave a talk at Moogfest called Mastery is Dead. Mm. And uh, with this um, kind of very philosophical approach to saying that the, the idea of mastery is, um, is something in Western culture, especially that we've held up as the ambitious goal. And yet, similar to Nietzsche saying God is dead, like it never really existed. It's, it, it's a fiction that we tell of uh, sort of isolating a few cultural moments as if they are ideal. Um, and then for most people, they don't want to go through the, the pain or, or the isolation or whatever it is, uh, the discipline to get to that one thing that someone else described as ideal. They want to play whatever they want to play. Um, and I think also generationally, you know, it's when I was in elementary school, plenty of kids played in the orchestra. That was, that was a totally normal thing. And, and it was still, uh, kind of the holdover from prior generations where you, you played acoustic instruments. Um, and now I think we've already gone through, uh, the phase where a first instrument would be an electric guitar or something that was, that was, uh, that was a transition. And now it's, it's apps. Now the first app you play is when you're two years old and your parents hand you an iPad. And, uh, and so GarageBand is a lot of kids first apps now for, for the past 10 years. Yeah. Well, and, and I'd like to not get too far ahead of ourselves, but that also I would think plays into the notion of, and I think it was very interesting that you, you've not, you didn't give it any, um, sort of value judgment one way or the other, this notion of mastery, not mastery, but the, the, the ability to be a casual um, mm -hmm. musician or, uh, um, or, or to not have to be a master in order to actually be a creator 
yeah. um, which I think directly relates to, to where we'll get to in our conversation. Yeah, totally. um, but could you talk to me a little bit more, uh, bridge the gap for me, for me from when you got up on stage um, in sort of a non-classical environment right. um, and went to university for music um, and other things. Um, what did you do in that intervening time musically? Were you, were you um, playing in rock and pop you know, in non-classical environments? And also, when did technology become an interest for you? Perfect. Um, yeah, I, I went to school uh, in Nashville. And, um, and so I started out in violin performance, actually, and then quickly switched over to music production more generally, because I uh, got in the studio and realized that I should live there. Um, and so, yeah, I really took to... Um, the studio tech uh, and signal flow thinking and um, just just that whole world of finding and and capturing sounds and then manipulating them that was that was pretty new to me I, I had up until that point um, thought of music as something you perform live and and suddenly this was not only something you record but then you can do things with it I mean I I learned you know on a studer tape machine and uh, you know, big, uh, big analog consoles. And, and when I was there was when they were first transitioning over to hard disk recording, uh, and into the digital domain. And, and so it was a cool transition moment, um, where it was so new to everybody, uh, and, and the process of recording in a linear fashion to a nonlinear editing that we all do today. Uh, that was, that was a major shift. So that was really exciting to be a part of that. Um, I, at the same time, discovered philosophy and sociology. And I went on to Virginia Tech and got a master's in philosophy and then a PhD in sound studies, um, which was really bridging all these kind of different passions and looking very broadly at technologies of sound and listening and how, um, how they've determined uh, socially and culturally our relationships uh, and our sort of spatial relationships with each other, uh, how we can each make the world sound the way we want it to or not, um, music being a subset of that. So that was super fun, uh, you know, exploring really this nascent field of sound studies and um, about 15 years ago. And, um, and then I... I started being a professor. I taught at college for six years in cultural theory, social network theory, um, and uh, just general uh, philosophy and sociology, which I loved. I really, really enjoyed teaching. Um, at the same time, a friend invited me to start up a product design firm uh, on the side. And I, I had always had ideas around this stuff and he was like yeah let's just build some stuff so we were contracted by a bunch of different companies to design their products and that that kind of uh taught me a new thing about myself which is i love that process of taking all these ideas from history and learning from what people do or can't do and then designing new experiences for them in my in my case to be creative so that that's uh, about a year later. I started Artifon, which is ten years ago now. Can we 
can you help me understand a little bit more? I don't want to gloss past it too quickly. What is the, um, what is the field of sound studies? I, I feel like I grok it a little bit, but I don't want to assume too much. Um, you provided me some good context I didn't have before. I didn't realize there was sort of the philosophical, sociological element to it. I was thinking it was much more of a technical field, but could you, could you just break it down a little bit for me? Yeah, it's, um, it's been changing a lot. Uh, and about 15 years ago, there was really this convergence of multiple humanities and sciences um, and, and people getting together and saying, this is a multidisciplinary field. And so, um, yes, there are acousticians, but there are historians and sociologists and philosophers. And what if we all get in a room and talk about sound from our different perspectives and kind of cross-pollinate. Um, so a few different journals were started and, and conferences and things. And it was, it was a, a really fun moment uh, of that. But, you know, it goes back decades to John Cage writings and all kinds of people, you know, asking about the role of the soundscape and all this stuff in modern life. Um, so, you know, I don't, it certainly wasn't, started or ended at any given time. Now it's, um, I think it's become uh, as fields tend to do, you know, more specialized where people are, are going down roads of looking at the, um, uh, the, the more even data driven side of this. So what, what sounds are present in everyday life, um, you know, noise studies from that perspective, obviously music, uh, musicology, uh, has a major influence on it, but a lot of sound studies is trying to make sure that it's not just musicology yeah. uh, and that we can talk about sound in more general ways. And so there's a theoretical extreme and an applied extreme. Very much. Yeah. And, and they cross over. I mean, a lot of my graduate research was in the field of science and technology studies, STS. So it was, um, it was very much the sort of philosophy of technology and then my focus was technologies of sound. Um, so yeah, it's, it's amazing. I, I miss it. I mean, running a company and designing all this stuff is, is, uh, it takes a lot of time, but, uh, I'm looking forward to getting back to writing someday. Uh, yeah, really enjoyed it. Is there, um, on the theoretical side, is there an accessible primer that an interested party could read or, or, is there a touchstone text or something um, that would help a lay person understand the field or understand the philosophy? Yes. Um, although I'd love to turn around and take a look at my bookshelf and get back to you on that okay, one. Fair it, enough, really fair it really depends on, uh, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say that there is a, uh, you know, a standard book. The writings of Jonathan Stern, S-T-E-R-N-E, uh, he was at, or is that McGill? Um, uh, he, I know, has a sort of anthology of, of sound studies that came out. So that could be a good overview. Um, and yeah, I, I might start with his, his work. Great. Um, all right. I promise we're going to get to Artifone and Artifone in just a second. Yeah, I great. have to ask one other question. Um, what is, what subset of sound is noise and and how is noise different from just sound well 
Now, now we're having fun. Uh, um, <laughs> so my uh, my dissertation research was on the phenomenology of sound through technology. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the term phenomenology, but it's a it's a field of philosophy that really looks at the experience of your perceptions and your experience of the world rather than assuming abstract systems that exist, uh, whether you experience them or not. So it, it goes back centuries, but it was uh, pretty popular the last century of kind of just resetting philosophy as something that we can talk about our experiences. Um, mm -hmm. And so in my case, I wanted to look at the ways we um, contextually and, you know, in every second, we changed our, thresh our thresholds of perception um, so that the ideas of noise and silence and music and speech and environmental sounds and so on, really, we, I wanted to investigate them all from this concept of thresholds. And with phenomenology, there's a, a term called intentionality uh, or the intention, which is basically how you direct yourself uh, out to the world and allow um, experiences to happen to you, like what you expect the world to be, your intention to listen, for instance. And so if you're at, to your question, if you're at a, a noise concert, you intend, you have the intention to go and hear a bunch of crazy waveforms all colliding with each other, and you probably want it pretty loud. And you probably don't want to have a quiet conversation there. And so you have all these expectations, very social and cultural expectations uh, and psychological. You go and you, you probably psych up to feel a certain way um, versus going to have a quiet dinner at a French restaurant um, and they accidentally play noise music at full volume. Um, so, you know, it, I, I basically um, was investigating all, all the ways that we could think about noise from that simple threshold perspective. And my definition of noise was that it was in excess over your expectations. And so anything could be noise, including, um, you know, the things we normally associate with sort of chaotic uh, signals, but, uh, but also just someone walking up and yelling in your ear, you know, or, or, um, a high-pitched noise or anything could be noise if it's in excess over what you expected the world to sound like at a given time. And so if we are in control of our acoustic spaces, uh, we can limit noise, whatever that is. Someone else's music could be your noise right now. And um, the inverse is silence, of course, which is I expect to hear something, but I can't. And so deafness is a form of silence. Um, just like the volume being too low on your stereo. Um, if, if you expect it to be louder and, uh, and you can't hear it, then it's a form of silence. First of all, thank you. That's, yeah. that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a new way to frame the definition for me. So thank you. Try to um, simplify it. Yeah. Well, it's good. I, I keep it simple for me. Yeah. Um, but the, um, the interesting notion in there is that, uh, even a sound 
normally associated or normally perceived by the subject as pleasant can become noise. To your point, if the expectation of the volume or the intensity of it is, is off. So I could enjoy hearing, um, you know, my partner's voice, but if it's coming at me, not even in a yell, but if it's, if it's just out, if it's in the wrong context, it's noise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the ideas of, so phenomenology doesn't assume, you know, aesthetics like beauty, um, but it allows for it. And, uh, and yet that has to do with your, your state as a, as a subject, as a, as a listener in this case, and you, you have to intend or be open to a certain configuration of sound in space to receive it as beautiful or not. Mm -hmm. Um, so the same goes, you know, for noise as a, uh, a a sort of, it doesn't always have to be negative. You could, you could invite excess. That's what you want to feel. I mean, if, if, if you turn on certain music and turn it up, you, you want it to surprise you. Right. Um, and so even excess can be sublime and amazing if, if you want to be shocked. Uh, yeah. compared to, you know, uh, Satie's uh, sort of um, functional music uh, and, and Muzak that you, you want to make sure doesn't ever really surprise you. Yeah. Uh, Eric Satie does surprise me. I don't, I don't want to don't uh, <laughs> mistake that. But, but it's, it's, what's interesting as well to me is that I, I think of, um, as a listener, there's a lot of music that I enjoy that I consider you know, of like the genre or the orientation of noise mm-hmm. could be some of the work of say like a John Zorn yeah. might have yeah. noise elements. Then there's other music, you know, industrial music, maybe to an extent. Then there's other music that to me, when I hear it, sounds like the other kind of noise. (laughs) (laughs) The noise that my phenomenology does not associate with aesthetic beauty. (laughs) Well, and, and, you know, it could be, it could be that it's so formulaic um, that, I mean, you could say that, that even Mozart is noise. If, um, if what you're expecting is something that, that has more of a, you know, modern rock and roll kind of feel. And then what you get are highly structured timbres and patterns that follow, uh, you know, norms from hundreds of years ago that can mess with your head. And I mean, there's a lot of classical music that is really hard for people to listen to these days because we haven't been trained in those kinds of harmonies and and forms. Um, And I, I would call that a form of noise because it's, it's excessive in terms of its complexity or um, even its emotional impact. If you're listening to something that you, you don't want to be affected that much. Um, you know, I listen to a lot of minimalist music because I want music to match the, the mood I'm in, or I want it to sort of slot into um, a layer of my experience. Um, it doesn't always have to be center stage which actually does, uh, we can touch on this in a bit, but uh, really does figure into my uh, product design and experience design uh, mentality um, to make sure that 
we don't overdetermine what music and creativity is uh, in our everyday lives. Um, because I think back to the mastery is dead thing. I think it has been, I think music, we, we think of as this big, heavy thing that needs to be amazing all the time when really we might free up music to be something that we experience in little bits and pieces and moments uh, that's really simple or just fun and casual. It doesn't always have to be this big creative project that you spend hours doing on a Saturday night. So yeah. we'll get back to that. Yeah. Well, why don't we, why don't we cross that bridge now? And yeah. um, we're one of the, we'll, we'll bring a few of the strands together. And one of the strands was uh, something you said a few minutes ago about how you evolved into the, um, into the product design sure. discipline and company um, and how that led to where you are now. So um, want to complete that thought or complete that part of the narrative and that will open up our conversation into what you're doing now. Yeah. Um, okay. So back to the history. Um, you know, I said my friend invited me to start a product design firm. It, we did a couple of smart home speakers um, around 2010, and at that time, it was it was really about you know uh, I was thinking a lot about sort of ambient sound, meaning any kind of music you want, but distributed music throughout your home, and it, rather than the stereo in the living room sort of Sonos mentality, but in an even lighter weight way. So I was, I was playing with all that, those kinds of ideas. And then I realized that, you know, music consumption was pretty well taken care of. Those were like the jawbone days, you know, the jawbone jam box and That's right, the little, all that stuff. It was like the little brick. Yeah, exactly. Heavier than, than it looked. Um, uh, but so many people were figuring that stuff out. The headphone market was, was starting to boom and and I was like I was looking over at all my instruments and and just my background and saying like I can probably do something more unique in music creation um and there was there it was also a moment where the iPad had just been released and GarageBand on mobile was um was really starting to take off and it just really clicked for me that this was going to be the new norm that, uh, like I mentioned before, that kids, their first instrument really would be an app and that we have access to any sound in the world now in our pockets. The, the challenge that I set out to, well, create and pursue was how do we want to touch those sounds? So assuming that every sound can be played, through samples or synthesis, um, it's back to an ergonomic question. It's back to the UI and the, the interface of how we interact with music. And traditionally, the UI of music is the thing that generates the sound. So the, the user interface of a guitar is also the physical guitar that resonates to create the sound, right? It's one, one overall thing. Well, with digital, we're not tied to physics. Uh, as much so and yet our bodies still are so what's that bridge going to be between an intention i have back to the phenomenological intention uh translating into say a gesture that i can do or a technique that then translates into a technology and that technology can transduce my 
technique into sound. If that was a little technical, I'm sorry, but um, no, no. Uh, that's the that's the signal chain that I set out to kind of rethink, and it led me to this idea of universal instruments and um, and multi instruments, uh, multimodal interfaces, rather than inventing a new guitar or a new piano or a new drum machine. Could there be interfaces that were more universal and abstract and that people could look at and say, oh, I can play that because there's no one way to play. You play it however you want. Um, so that's when I started Artifon to start to figure out what that could be, in a, especially in a mobile context. Um, and now everything's mobile. I mean, you know, whether it's your phone or a laptop, like we, we can compute anywhere now. Um, so I figured our, our musical devices should be able to go anywhere with us too. Um, so that's where it started. And so what was V1 of all of that thinking <laughs> and, and <laughs> what was the output? Uh, it was a wooden like uh, workshop of a, a device that had a dock in it for an iPhone 3GS uh, and it, with a 30 pin cable. Uh, but docs were, docs were cool, uh, for a moment there. And it had, first it had buttons and then it had this, uh, sort of grid like interface that, um, that you could treat like a guitar neck or a bass or a violin or a cello, but you could also lay it down and play it like a keyboard or a drum machine. And it was pressure sensitive, um, surface so that you could get all these different gestures and you could slide and turn on and off the frets or the keys. Um, and we made, we made prototypes. I was in Nashville and we, uh, we tested it with a bunch of, you know, studio musicians and friends and everything else. And it was funny because I always wanted this to be something that resonated with people who otherwise wouldn't be playing. Like that was the real, vision of this but of course i wanted musicians to love it too why not like everyone should have fun with this and it was the traditional uh you know nashville guitar players who offered the most resistance uh and uh i remember putting it in the hands of uh, one of prince's guitar players and he was really fascinated by it and yet you know uh said i i don't know how to play this thing because I, I I want the strings to be there and I want to bend them in exactly the way that I've trained my fingers to do so for decades. And this, I can start there, but it's not doing the same thing. You know, um, the, the physics aren't precisely a guitar. And I said, exactly like this. It's not trying to be that. But that became the tension for years, actually, uh, in designing. That was That became the product called the Instrument One. And then we moved on uh, to uh, one called Orba that we released uh, a couple years ago. Um, the instrument one was very much the product of hybridizing historical instruments and mm -hmm. allowing anyone who played a historical instrument to start somewhere and then go further, you know, away from that instrument rather than just replicate it skeuomorphically. But I also wanted it to be something that if you never picked up a cello, you could 
you could put this thing on your knee and run your hand up and down it and play like a cello immediately. And so, you know, we could let people who never had access or, or could uh, play other instruments, traditional instruments, to at least have some semblance of playing with those gestures that we've developed over thousands of years. That seems, seems like a fun thing to do. So that's what the instrument one was really all about, um, you know, uh, referencing the history of instruments. Orba, which is a handheld half um, sort of, you know, spherical um, uh, grapefruit kind of <laughs> looking thing, <laughs> um, was really inspired by game controllers and, uh, and phones and the, the dexterity of our thumbs. And so it, it was intentionally going the opposite direction of, okay, what, what are the ergonomics of today? And what do we all already know how to do and do really well versus trying to replicate traditional or instrument ergonomics? And, um, and so, yeah, kind of two, two very different design mentalities going into them. But of course, they do the same thing. They, they generate MIDI, they generate notes. Uh, you know, if you, if you plug them into a sample set, you're, you're going to get the same sound, but you're going to play it very differently. Oh, so that, that was my next question. They, they mm -hmm. interface with your, with your audio workstation the same as any other instrument interface. They leverage MIDI. They you could plug in a keyboard and you, you'd play the same thing. The instrument one is a MIDI controller and it has built-in speakers. So it's, it's like a one cable connection to your iPhone. You open up GarageBand and now you can play all those sounds any way you want with a piece of hardware with built-in speakers. So that was kind of a breakthrough at the time of that one cable connection and you're done. Like back to the studio signal chain thinking, normally you'd have to have a bunch more cables in there and speakers and all the stuff. And this was all about just a one stop, just turn it on and go. Orba took that a step further because we made a built-in synth that actually can play a bunch of parts at once. Uh, I think it's a 15 voice synthesizer and looper that runs all at the same time. Uh, and so, you know, Orba can be hooked into any other sound generator, but it also can run standalone and it has a built-in speaker. So you can just turn it on and tap out a few notes in between meetings and, and then, then you're back. With the, um, with the evolution from instrument one to Orba, did you set aside at all the aspiration of putting it in the hands of more traditional instrumentalists and sort of caring about their experience? Like, who who do you have in mind when you're developing a product like Orba? So we launched both of our products on Kickstarter. And what we learned actually both times was that these the idea of these kind of universal instruments does cut across normal demographics. Uh, and it, at Artifon, we, we have a, a sort of phrase that we say internally that we want to ignore skill. Like, of course, anyone else can talk about skill if they want. We don't want to talk about skill because, um, because as much as possible, we want to design in a way that you can have a great time whether you have training in something or if you believe in innate musical talent, like whatever, 
can we ignore that in our process? And so when we test our, these different designs, we really do, uh, I, I, I should mention, even for the instrument one, I put it in the hands of three-year-olds and, you know, um, my grandmother, like all kinds of people. Uh, and, and so it really is about testing to see what are those common denominators between different types of people, musical familiarities or, um, or, or, you know, other, even the price points, like we, we really want these to be accessible to the majority of people. Um, but there are certain elements that we designed for those particular groups. And in the case of Orba, for instance, the playing surface, uh, is it uses capacitive touch. So similar to your phone screen or a trackpad, um, it's, but ours is much faster and, and very musically tuned, uh, which wasn't a normal thing that people did before, but it was kind of the perfect technology uh, for us because it was so immediate that when you touch it, you're going to get sound. Even if you touch it super lightly, like if you touch a piano key, nothing happens. If you just like, don't press it down, right? Uh, but here, if you just graze your finger over Orba, you're going to get a sound. And, um, and that magical moment meant that the very beginner who's super timid and like doesn't know if they can make music or not just made a cool sound just by like picking the thing up. And the professional, whatever professional means, uh, has a super fast and responsive digital interface that's you know faster than most in drum machines in terms of responsiveness and um and so they picked it up and said whoa this is a great way to make beats or you know um this is a we have an accelerometer and gyroscope in there so you can get all these different gestural controls mm -hmm. so it's actually the most advanced midi controller out there with a bunch of different signals that it sends at once that you can map to any parameter in your synth it's crazy and yet the majority of people who buy it don't even know what midi is they don't that doesn't matter does it work am i having fun with it that's the point so that's kind of a couple of different answers but that's that's how we think about it have you i mean I, I would have to think that there's a lot of fun and just joy around watching people pick it up and yeah. start to play and I wonder, um, I have a, actually a couple of questions along that, along okay, those good. lines. Um, maybe I'll, I'll ask a couple of questions and then shut up so you could answer. Rather well, and I definitely want to chat. Uh, no, let's keep it conversational. I, 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 I definitely want to chat about the apps too, because, you know, recently we've been taking all these principles and really um, figuring out how we can make them more virtual and think about the ergonomics and user interfaces of touch screens and cameras. Uh, and so it goes beyond just our hardware and back into really any of the devices you already have. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, let's, we'll make sure to, to get, it's all the same stuff. It's just, how do you want to play it? Right. Yeah. So anyway, what, what are you thinking? No, that, that is, that, that is fascinating. Um, well, I wonder, have you seen, are there any examples either that you've seen in your sort of like demoing, testing, focus grouping or out in the wild of um, ensembles hmm. made up of uh, just instrumentalists using the devices? I, that's sort of question one. And question two is, 
have you gotten them into the hands of sort of again i i, I can talk about skill level even though you've banned it um <laughs> you know have you gotten them into the hands of say a brian eno you know as someone mm. who could take a device like this and say ah i see where this fits in the context of a lineage or what yeah. i do or what you know anything in those areas so yes we've seen um not only in schools but some uh more experimental groups uh get multiple artifon instruments in in the same room and it's pretty fun uh, most often we're seeing it as another accessory to to the band or to the production studio you know a lot of we've really developed this cool community online who share either fully produced music uh, as songs, for instance, or just these little kind of micro musical moments uh, on social media. And, um, and one of the things that Orba really provides is a very fast way to build up short loops. And, and so within 30 seconds, you can build up a groove that you can get into and you can show that off if you want to. Um, so uh, we haven't focused yet as much on the communal play side of it. We are very excited about that and, and working on it. Uh, but, but for now, we wanted to build people's confidence around just playing music, e even in privacy and for its own sake, and this kind of new behavior of casual everyday music making. Um, before we made it about the, uh, well, sort of the orchestra that I was a part of as a kid um, that took a couple hundred years to, to develop. Uh, <laughs> uh, but he didn't have we'll more law, though. <laughs> yeah, we'll go faster than that now. Um, as for, as for um, celebrities and, uh, you know, the um, sort of famous musicians, yes, we have... Uh, we have some fun uh, relationships uh, with, you know, musicians and using uh, our instruments in studios. Um, you know, I'll say we, we, we really haven't focused on that as, as a company as much, which is a little weird for, for what seems, you know, we seem like just a musical instrument company. Doesn't Gibson and Fender, isn't that how they live and breathe? Right. Um, uh, so, no, no, Jimmy Page isn't like didn't play an instrument one or whatever. Um, but that hasn't been the point for us, and 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 so it's it's exciting when when people play that. I remember a couple of years ago, um, this is a funny one, but uh, T Pain uh, invited us on his TV show, um, and. Uh, he, I mean, so nice. Uh, we, we had a lot of fun. Like we went in a studio and he played it. And uh, anyway, he, uh, he really enjoyed it. But funny enough, you know, he as a producer and he's, he's such a talented, um, I mean, he's, he's got an amazing voice actually. And, and he's a great producer. He's not an instrumentalist in a traditional sense, but that's why he liked it. It's because he could play on it, and um, we have this mode called Smart Strum, which you can choose a chord and then strum through it, kind of like an omnichord kind of thing. And he was just like, "Whoa, this this lets me like 
sound good on <laughs> yeah, on sort of a, a strumming thing and and so that's part of the reason we still try to ignore skill and and even celebrity i mean brian Eno has all the instruments he could ever want um i don't know if he's looking for an orba in his life um i'd love to find out <laughs> but uh uh but we do a lot of collaborations with with artists kind of rethinking their own um their own process and what they want but i think we've mostly designed these for normal people who want to dabble in music making and just have fun with it um in the moments of their day that's yeah. that's the main point for us it's really interesting to hear you articulate it that way because you know you think about to an extent the model of other you know you mentioned fender and gibson it would seem that a big point of differentiation is that they sell the aspiration of mastery. And mm -hmm. as you stick with it, the longer you stay a guitarist, yeah. arguably the more expensive of equipment you will upgrade to, you'll want yeah. the less Paul, you'll want the custom, you'll want the blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, you'll want the custom accessories. You might, you know, that, that whole, that whole world of, yeah. of, mastery somehow tied to the tool right and um but i wonder and again maybe this isn't something you have to think about or care about but is it do you have to wrestle with the idea of like this is something that if we're good at it people will stop using because they'll graduate they'll want to then say oh i i need a full workstation i need a keyboard in front of me i need a blah 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 or is there a longer term notion of like, how do you, how do you keep your customer basically would be the, the simplest way to ask it. Well, that's a good business question. A little different than what we've been talking about so far. Um, you know, for me, I'm always going to come back to the product experience and, and the affordances that it provides and the, the minimalism we've chosen to do with, with our products, I, I think we'll always have a place, you know, yes, people do, uh, buy an Orba and then buy more gear or people who have a lot of gear buy an Orba to add to their collection. Um, that's great, but Orba does something that other things don't. It doesn't have any knobs on it. It doesn't have a screen. You know, it has a limited sound selection. You can only make loops of a certain length. So when you pick it up, those constraints mean, you know, for me, I, keep it on my desk. And if I have 30 seconds between calls, I'll pick it up, make a loop, shake to erase and turn it off because that's where it fits. Whereas my other gear, it, you know, in my studio, I really have to commit to that. I have to turn everything on, sync it up. Uh, you know, I, I actually have a, a small home studio without a screen, uh, because I'm on screens most of the day. Um, but still it's, you got to tune the oscillators or whatever it is. And, um, and so I, I think we just want to make devices or, or apps that fit in the nooks and crannies of your day more so than, um, than a stepping stone or a training wheel or something, yeah. uh, you know, and, and that gets to even notions of quality and fidelity, which I also think are somewhat fictional um in that we can play you know orba can play a sample set uh on your computer of the 
Philharmonic or whatever. Like it, you can sound as good as you want to, depending on the other gear you have. That's not really the point for the device itself. Uh, the point is just to enjoy a moment and our apps even more so, um, are really about, well, Orbicam, uh, for instance, is about making videos that are musical that might be 10 seconds long and have two chords in them, but it heightens the mood. It's like a tiny soundtrack. And that's the point. Like, it doesn't matter where the sound came from or the sample rate. I mean, it's actually a pretty good sample rate, but uh, uh, you I know what so. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, you know, thank you for, for taking me back to the, um, the topic of the apps because it was something that to be transparent, I wasn't fully getting it and just yeah. reading about it. Sure. It sounded very fantastical. Yeah. Yeah. And, Fantasia uh, was an inspiration. Well, talk to me then about, tell, tell me about the apps, the, the intention and what they do. What, what, what you have, I have a hardware device today. I could take around with me and do all kinds of fun stuff with, right. but I have lots of other devices all over my home. And it seems right. like the apps turn those into musical instruments. Is that fair? It, it could. Here's, okay. here's the idea. <laughs> all the stuff that we've learned in the past decade about rethinking musical interfaces um the, the the first decade was really about going beyond the screen because i saw GarageBand and all these other apps and you know ableton and, and all the sort of music production world bringing people further and further into screen-based non-linear playing and i thought well if we build these ergonomic devices we can get people beyond the screen and uh and back into their kind of lived space then something clicked a couple years ago for me and it started this whole sort of r d path that has now led to this app called orbicam and it's really that we're going through the screen with a camera and it yes the screen is is what you're looking at but it's actually a portal into your life and so can you play the world can you make the world sound the way you want it to uh and uh, and how simple could we make those interactions so that it just works so that you don't have to jump into a DAW to edit the sound. You don't have to jump into even iMovie to synchronize the sound in the video. Uh, you don't have to then do visual effects in some other app. Like this could be an immediate thing where the sound, the video and the visual effects all just happen with the simplest gesture. And that's what we ended up, um, uh, you know, building up and we're patent pending. And we're like, this has been this whole process to figure out how do you actually do that and collapse all of these components down to the simplest thing. But that's what, that's what we're all used to now. Like, I mean, whether you're communicating with someone, you're creating photo or video content, you know, everything is available pretty instantly now, but music we've held up in this sacred space of no, that's for musicians that you really have to learn how to do it. There's a quality component, all that. So I'm just, I'm trying to mess all that stuff up and say, no, you can pretty immediately create your own music and video. Just open this app, tap out a few notes, share the video and you're done. Uh, and if that works, we'll see, we just launched it. Uh, and we're going to keep, you know, we've got a bunch of plans for it, but this really is a new behavior set 
yeah. for the world. I mean, on TikTok, you can add someone else's music. Uh, that's that's a totally known thing to do now. But that was really difficult a couple of years ago, and now everyone does it. I think similarly, if we can inspire people to uh, be musical with their content that they're sharing and how they express themselves without being musicians, without even if you are a musician otherwise, don't think of yourself as a musician at this moment. Just think about yourself as someone who wants to share a cool video that is a little more movie-like because you put a little soundtrack in it. That's enough. Um, and in that sense, we're drastically lowering the bar of what it takes to be musical and hopefully getting below that threshold of intimidation that keeps people back. Yeah. And the, um, the app's available now? It is, yeah. Um, this app is called Orbicam, and it has, uh, it has eight pads on the screen that look a lot like Orba's uh, eight circular pads. But you can switch between drum, bass, chord, and lead modes. Uh, you can record a quick video, and you can actually then loop over and do some overdubs to add parts after the fact. So you could, like, import you could do this live or you could import any uh any video from your camera roll uh it's on iphone and ipad um and then soundtrack it later um so yeah i mean we're just we're just getting started i'm super excited to see what people do with it um but it's all the same principles to me just even back to the beginning of the conversation it's like improvisation and sort of everyday life uh is the point rather than just playing predetermined music uh, just so you can say you can. Uh, This is, it's a very different goal. Thank you so much, Mike Butera and the team at Artifon. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, and even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. If you like what we're up to here, please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Join us again next week, and in the meantime, be safe and stay in touch. Stay in touch.